This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, folks, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. My name is Sam Caston-Smith, and joining me today is Will Bushman. We're back in the saddle. We are back in the saddle. What you don't know is that we had some episodes all like accumulated so that it would allow us to go on vacation. So it's been more than two weeks and that's since we've done a podcast. And that's because we care about our listeners. That's right. We that's care. Right. We worked we, hard to get ahead, which is not us. We're not good at that. <laughs> yeah, planning and logistics. Wrong guys you're yeah, talking to not, right here. We need a manager. Anyone want to manage us? <laughs> All right. So how was your how was your trip to North Carolina? It was great. It cool. was not it was gr- nice not to be in a sauna every single day when you wake up. It was even chilly and it was fun. What was the coldest it got? In the mornings, it was cold, like 60s. Nice. Which was nice until you want to jump in a lake at 10 a.m. And you're like, this is, <laughs> yeah, this is an no. ice bath now. Yeah. So it was a little bit of a hit or miss. But Yeah. We did North Carolina, too, and we ended up going in some streams and, and riding on rafts and all that kind of stuff. Not like whitewater, just kind of lazy. Tubing. Lazy river tubing, yeah. Okay, that's nice, and it's, though. Very cold water. It yeah. takes quite a while to get into that water. <laughs> you know, it's like inch at a time. So one of the things that happened, we went up to my my father-in-law's house. This is just a, a stupid story, and, and no one got hurt, but it was wild. It was so it was, this was our introduction to North Carolina, and so he just bought a property, and this guy who owned the house before him grew all of his own meat, kept his own hogs and chickens, and so there's slaughterhouses and stuff like that around around the property. Nice. Which is, Very usable for yeah. your... So we're on the way there, and one of Jacob's cousins gave him a bunch of clothes, and among the clothes was a LeBron jersey, LeBron James. And my son Jacob just despises the Lakers and LeBron. Okay. He's a big Steph Curry fan. And uh, so he was like, can we burn this? And I was like, I don't, I don't care. I mean, it's probably not the best thing to do. <laughs> it's not a flag, though, yeah. so whatever. Yeah, right. There's no ethical. We get up to North Carolina, and my father-in-law has a little burn barrel going. And so I was like, oh, look. That's, that's good for the environment. Fortuitous. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's burning, like, trash and wood and whatever. And apparently something else. But we, uh, so he, he throws the jersey in there, and we're watching it burn, and it hit something, and just enough weight to hit this thing underneath that was getting hot and pressurized, and it went, boom, and it blew. I mean, we had soot and ash, and Jacob got a little shrapnel piece in his oh forehead. But everybody emerged unscathed, but that was our introduction to North Carolina. And LeBron got the last word. So Hey, don't hey. mess with LeBron out there, folks. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, that, that didn't go well for, for us. But it was a good trip. It was good to get away, see family. Yeah, small towns are, are fascinating and fun. Yeah, but way different culture, just slow, which I like. So we stayed in Boone okay. uh, and uh, Lenore, if you know where that is. It's Even like I went out to buy ribs because that's what you do in North Carolina. You buy ribs <laughs> to cook. And they just didn't have any at the place I went. I drove 35 minutes to get ribs. Wow. That's commitment. And I went back to... At more, some point, I'm like, uh, peanut butter and jelly's fine. Yeah, but that's where the butcher was, and that's what you do. Because you have time. You know, it's like an outing. Yeah. Like, I can get out for two hours to just go buy ribs, I guess. <laughs> but when I got there, just no ribs. They're like, we won't have any. They didn't come over the mountain. I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, where are you getting these ribs? 
<laughs> but they didn't come over the mountain. Yeah, then I went back to Morgan's like grandpa and I was like, this is why you this is why you're always calling people before you go places here. Like that didn't click in my head. Oh. Like yeah. I wasn't thinking like, oh, they're just out of this. And they were. <laughs> yeah. You're supposed that's like a barbecue place. You should have ribs. Yeah, that's why, yeah. Anyway. All right. So we're we're actually picking up uh, in the book of Exodus, we we did chapter one um, last time, and we t- it, in that scenario, what we found was the slavery intensified. It became bitter. There was a new king that didn't know Joseph, and he imposed very harsh slavery, and he started taking measures to kill the Hebrew boys. And so, where we landed last time was he was ordering the midwives to kill them. They refused, and then he ordered uh, his officials, his troops, his army, his government officials to kill them and to throw them into the Nile, and that's where chapter 1 ends. And so in chapter 2 today, we get introduced to Moses, who's arguably, I would say, the most important character of the Old Testament. So he's going to be the one that writes the Torah, which is going to be the five, what seems to be the most sacred books among the Jews um, for, for their history. Even, even to this day, the Torah is, is lifted up as you know, th- seemingly the most sacred scriptures of the Old Testament. He's going to be the great prophet, the one who leads them in deliverance out of Egypt. And so like, if you were to rank the top three most important Old Testament figures, what would you say? Who, who would you say? I already have mine in mind. So oh, this is fair. I'm, I've got an advantage of thinking about this for a couple of years. Um, Moses would be in it. Yep. I'm not going to give you a number value yet. So just All right. Moses. Big fan of Abraham now after a Genesis series. All right. Um, I don't know. Isaiah is important just for the prophecy's sake. Yeah, I'll go with that. I don't. Sam's miming something to me for those. <laughs> that are it was a crown that was supposed to be a crown. Oh, you want King David in there? Yeah, he's got to be in there. Don't you don't get to choose my three favorites? Oh, I get then, to choose and then commentate on what I choose. Yeah, well, let me sh- let me tell you why you're wrong. Okay, tell me why I'm wrong. <laughs> name name your three. So anyway, the only, the only reason why I got into it, it's not even so much about our favorites, but. The point I was going to make is when you get to the New Testament, the the characters that are cited the most or mentioned the most are Moses, Abraham, and David. And so, was it, stop rolling your eyes. No. I didn't even like this argument. <laughs> but anyway, so there you have kind of the patriarch, the great prophet, and then the king that comes along. Um, and Moses, for sure, up there, tremendously important. So we're going to meet this. Let's get into Baby it. and young man in today's passage. So chapter 2, verse 1 says, Now a man from the house of Levi. So pause right there. What do we know about the house of Levi so far? Because there, this is going to be the house that become the teachers of the law. This is going to be the, the house that produces all the priests going forward in the nation of Israel. But to this point, we don't know that because that that isn't made known until you get to Mount Sinai later on. So at this point, when it introduces you and says, oh, somebody from the house of Levi, what do you know? Not good thoughts now. It's not good thoughts just looking backward. Going forward, there's some of good course. stuff. There's but, a redemptive element in the future. But yeah. right now, historically, we just have Levi who slaughters yeah. people. That's right. So Levi going backwards, if you remember, it's Levi and Simeon that slaughter the town of Shechem and kill all the men. And when Jacob is giving the blessings just a couple chapters back, 
He says, you guys are like weapons. You, you just, you're, you're dangerous against everybody around you. Like, and so you, they're, they're warring kind of people. And so when it says the house of Levi, my brain wants to fill in, oh, this is the priestly teacher, prophet, you know, kind of vibe going on. But looking backward, this would have been, these, these, are, these are people who fight. And actually Moses in his early life is going to try to walk into that narrative. Uh, and it's, that's not going to go well for him, actually. But And so Levi is going to get a facelift through the family of Moses. Slowly but surely. That's right. That's right. So a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. And we're, they're not named here, but when you get to Exodus chapter 6, they are named, and it's Amram and Jacobed. So that, those are going to be his, his dad and his mom. And, and so, not to be rude, but they're nothing special, right? Yeah, nothing special. Which is fascinating that the deliverer of all the people of the Hebrews is just going to be born of normal heritage. Mm-hmm. And I think that part of the reason why it waits to name them is to let you know they're nothing special. Like, they're just kind of these anonymous people from the house of Levi. Like, that's cool. who, who are you? That's cool. <laughs> you know, you know the, the salvation of the world is going to come through your kids. The salvation of this nation of people is going to come through your kid, and they, they would have had no idea. I mean, they wouldn't have been expecting it any more than anyone else, just kind of God working through random people. And so, and at I, this time, you're not looking to have a child, technically. They are multiplying like crazy still, even in the midst of all this bitter slavery, which is just interesting that in the oppression, their numbers keep growing. Um, but this is, this is pretty wild. Like you still have faith to bring a kid into that world yeah, knowing that's that that's their life to come. Oh, you're going to be a slave for the rest of your life. All right, well, let's have or more kids. Or just the fact that now every Hebrew is getting tossed in the Nile. Do yeah, they true. know that part yet? True. Yeah. I guess we saw Pharaoh yeah. command that, but I guess as for sure. Hebrew people, you're probably like, oh no, this is bad timing to have a Hebrew son. Yeah, and so so just a, one thing real quick that is to give some context to the story we don't know how long after Pharaoh gives that decree that she's pregnant with okay. Moses. One of the reasons why we think it has to be pretty recent is that Moses has an older brother, and his older brother is named Aaron. He's going to be the first high priest of Israel, and we know that he's three years older than Moses because later on in the story, when Moses is 80, Aaron is 83. And so she's had a son who survived that he wasn't one of the male babies that gets thrown into the water, but now she's got a new baby coming along, and it's going to be dangerous. Okay. So it, this must have been recent. Yeah, there was no hiding of Aaron when he was born. Correct. To save him. Okay. Correct, yeah, and Aaron survives. So obviously this is a new, a, a new decree. So the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. And so how do you hear that? When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. Like, what would have happened if he wasn't? Yeah, that's, that's a bad adjective in my mind. <laughs> yeah, well, today's, today's language is like... Yeah, but it does seem like, oh, yeah, if there was a bad child or... See, that's the way I always read it. And what it means, because the, the, the language there, the Hebrew, it means that he is a peaceful child. He's not screaming, he's not crying, he's not colicky, which means... You he can, can hidden. conceal ah. him. And so it's not like, Jacobet is not like, no, oh, this is a good one. We'll keep him. Because yeah, <laughs> that, that's the way I always used to read this. Like, oh, that's kind of weird. It's this baby is peaceful. This baby is quiet. I will be able to conceal him and try to hide him. 
Uh, and verse three, it says, when she could hide him no longer, she took him for him, a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with pitchumen and pitch. And so this is literally the, that word bulrushes. If you, if you look at what what's behind it, it's papyrus reeds. And so, and the word there for basket, you've, you've heard this before. You oh, know, yeah, I have. What does it mean? It's ark. It's ark. And there's only two times where that word is used in the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, it's different than when it's talking about the ark of the covenant, but it's the same word that was used when talking about Noah's ark. And so what did Noah's ark accomplish? It delivered God's people from judgment of water yeah of water judgment yeah it delivered not only god's people but all of humanity through through the a judgment in water and so when moses goes into this ark what god wants you to understand by inspiring the use of that word here is that all of humanity and and god's people their salvation is at stake in this ark it's it's i think it's intending to draw your mind to recognize this is a very, very big deal. Um, and the fact that it's in papyrus, like, and the early church, some people made a big deal of this. Uh, because here you have, if you ever see papyrus, it's not strong. <laughs> you know, it's, it's old, I mean, it's like swamp weeds, you know, growing up that you then, you know, cut down, you dry out, you interweave, and you would use papyrus for paper. You know, okay. the ancient Egyptians used it. And one of the things that the early church fathers pointed out, because in the first century, people were still writing on papyrus. And so Moses is saved in an ark made of papyrus. And when the early church fathers looked at the scriptures being made out of papyrus, they said, this is also an ark for you. If you want salvation, get into the papyrus word of God, mm. you know, that salvation comes in the papyrus and and so in the early church, they made, they made a big deal out, or at least some people did. And I always thought that was kind of interesting. So take it or leave it. You know, you don't have to believe it. <laughs> anyway, anything else you want to say there? No, I think we're cooking, baby. All right. So she, she daubed it with bitumen and pitch. That's like tar. And she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And so why in the reeds? I have no idea. So every movie I've ever seen particularly the animated ones. Hey, don't, are you going to bash Prince Vijay? I'm, I'm going to, it's fine. I, I, I have to, you but have like to. what if you put him in the basket and he's, it's like the baskets going down whitewater currents and crocodiles are trying to bite it. And well, there's a reason why she puts it in the reeds. Like she's not, she's not reckless. Like good luck. Bye Moses. Yeah. You know, Hope you land safely. <laughs> yeah. It's in the reeds. So it's, it's not going anywhere. She's, and she wants that, right? So she puts it in the reeds it's there, kind of caught up in the weeds by the riverbank, and then she goes off into a distance, and she's just watching, like, what's going to happen? Is anybody going to come? Um, if Moses had floated away, she probably wouldn't have been able to, to just chase after him. And, um, and so it said, his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. This is his sister here is Miriam. Verse 5, it said, The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. All right, so let's pause there. 
what what's significant about this? Like when she opens this basket and she sees the baby, how does she know immediately that it's a Hebrew child? I'm assuming circumcision. Circumcision. That's right. So what does that mean? That after 400 years of oppressive slavery, of crying out, the Hebrews are still taking on the mm-hmm. covenant sign of God, which is incredible faith because you would think like, okay, we've been stomped on for centuries now. That would be the first thing I would drop in slavery. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that would have been a convenient thing yeah. to just let go of. And yet, here you have a family, and what what that's also hinting to you is Jacobed and Aram are faithful. Faithful, you know they're they're going to raise him up in at least the oral tradition that they've received that goes back to Abraham in this covenant of circumcision. And circumcision, by the way, just to, to make a point here, in Egypt they got circumcised. Did you know that? No. So Egyptians, when you became a priest, and not everybody was circumcised, okay, and they weren't circumcised as infants, but when you became a priest in Egypt, you were circumcised. And so there's wall carvings and paintings of men being held down as they're being circumcised. It's pr- they're pretty wild. <laughs> but they're, they're, they were circumcised as adults and only to go into the priesthood. And so I want you to pause there because the Egyptian circumcision probably predates when Abraham lived. Okay. So if God, if the Egyptians are saying, hey, at the age when you're allowed, you can become a priest by being circumcised, and God comes along and says, no, 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 I want all men to be circumcised. What is God saying? All men are priests. All men are priests. And so that's one of our doctrines. There's a universal priesthood. Everybody is a minister. Everybody's a minister. And so God kind of d- democratizes the priesthood by saying all men are going to be priests from birth. Like that's just kind of a cool correlation um, historically. So another thing is, do you want to get into the history of who Pharaoh's daughter might be? Uh, Maybe not that, but I want you to tell us why Pharaoh's daughter would have been there quickly. Well, that that gets back to the other. So that's fine. Yeah. Just, just make it happen. (laughs) So we know when Moses is born by tracking out the biblical clues on the timeline. And so, if you want to know when Moses is born, you have to figure out, okay, well, when, when, are the, when are we given clues about when he's born? So we're told that Moses led the Israelites through the Red Sea in the Exodus 480 years before Solomon completed his construction of the temple. We know that Solomon completed construction of the temple in 966 BC. So if you rewind the tape and go 480 years before that, the Exodus should be at 1446 BC, and we know that Moses was 80 years old when he accomplished the Exodus, and so if you rewind the tape 80 more years, you get to 1526 BC. And there's three different timelines about Egyptian pharaohs, but the one that I like, um, in 1526, the pharaoh of Egypt would have been a guy by the name of Thutmosis I, and it works perfectly. By the way, interesting little point when you get to the 18th dynasty which is where we are all the pharaohs start having names with moses in it thutmosis the first thutmosis the second amosis kamosis when you get to the 19th dynasty and you know the famous pharaoh ramses well that's the english pronunciation of it but it's literally ra moses and so that that word moses which means born from 
is literally a, an Egyptian royal dynastic name. And so it's no accident that Moses is given the name Moses. It's, it's Egyptian royalty. Well, what we find when we go back to Thutmosis I, when you dig at, the, at this slave city, ancient Avaris or, or Ramses, you find that Thutmosis I had this palace that he built, the first one that a southern Egyptian pharaoh built at this location, and it's right on the Nile. And we know from records that he only had one child, and her name was Hatshepsut. And so he has a daughter. He built a palace on the Nile in the slave city. And so when it says that Pharaoh's daughter is out you know, by the river, that would make no sense typically all throughout every other part of Egyptian history because their capital cities are way to the south. Memphis, long towed away. Thebes, long towed away. And so when it says Pharaoh's daughters walking around a river in a slave city, you're the skeptics want to be like, what? No way. This is garbage. You know, the Bible's not reliable. Then they start digging a few decades ago. And sure enough, the Pharaoh right at this time period builds a palace right on the Nile river. And he just so happens to have one daughter. Um, that, that just fits too well. And there is, you know, this is not just your theory. Some of it is your theory, but a lot of it is we do know that the palace existed there. There is archaeological evidence for all this. Yeah. Yeah, you can you can Google it. Google Thutmosis, the first palace out of Aris. I mean, you can see drawings of it and what it would have looked like, how close it was to the river, and you can trace out his family family line. So it's I mean, it's it's fascinating to piece together what might have been Moses' family tree. That's good. You did that fairly quickly. Proud of you. See? Huh? Mm-hmm. That's good. Working on That's it. That's good. The next part of that is if you want to get into the, like, what happens with Hatshepsut. I don't. <laughs> All right. So, so verse 7 then says, Then his sister, Miriam, said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And that's kind of a dark thing. You know, because what it, what that means is you have all of these Hebrew women, half of whom, you know, had boys, you know, some of them have live girls, but the ones who just had boys are going to be in mourning, but they've got all of this lactation and nowhere to deliver it. You know, their, their kids have been murdered. Do you want me to go get one of them for you? And then they can take care of this baby. So... Yeah, but Miriam's really setting all this up too, though. Oh, she's we have to remember that she is brilliant to like, hey, I'm going to watch, and this opportunity presented itself. Like she's laying down the groundwork for what's going to take place. Yeah, and she's going to play like when they when they're delivered from Egypt, you get on the other side of the Red Sea. You know, Moses is going to sing a song, and then God lets her sing a song. So she gets she gets incorporated into you know the ability to celebrate the deliverance because she plays a role here. Um, it's a big deal that Moses is going to have a Hebrew mother in those early developmental years. He's going to know who he is. So there's a lot of the Moses movies, again, to pick on the Moses movies, where he's 40 years old and all of a sudden he's finding out, oh my goodness, I'm a Hebrew? Well, <laughs> it would have been fairly obvious to him that he was a Hebrew in his you know early years. <laughs> you know, Every time he went to the bathroom, it's like, oh yeah, I'm a Hebrew. <laughs> I mean, he would have known that for sure. And to have had that link to his father and mother who were very uh, faithful, uh, we'd say, and he's, he's going to know that. 
So she, Miriam plays a big role in being able to set it up so that Moses has that blessing in his life. And so Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, Jochebed. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of water. And the name Moses means to come, to come out of or to be born of. So it literally means to be drawn out. And so that's why she, she names him that. Plus, it's a, a dynastic name. And so um, what would happen with surrogate mothers or, or however you want to put it? In Egypt, if you had royalty or nobility, they would have nannies and nursemaids that would take care of the kid until the kid got ready for training and royalty. And so usually around the age of five or six or somewhere around that age, the mother would begin taking over the chief duties of motherhood and begin getting him into the best of education, the royal academies and everything else. But for those first five years, no doubt Jacobed is catechizing Moses and all the things that were the oral traditions of the Hebrews in those days. And it's all fairly secretive. I would Pharaoh's daughter would like the Hebrew nursemaid in her mind to be filling her future child up with all that information. So it's a good question. And and this gets back to, you know, the theory that if it is Hatshepsut who is this Egyptian daughter which, you know, I think, but I can't be certain of that. We know that Hatshepsut does not have any children of her own. Okay. Um, it's going to be, um, the line continues through a different woman's child. And um, you, so you see Hatshepsut is going to have competing loyalties against the Egyptian line. And Hatshepsut is known, like her reign is known as peace, um, it's one of commerce. It's one that draws in foreign trade and and reigns much more in that vibe as opposed to the other Egyptian pharaohs of the time, like Thutmosis III, which will be the one who hates her and ends up deposing her and smashing her image and hating her, the one that Moses flees from, I believe. Um, he's going to be very militaristic okay. and tyrannical. But Hatshepsut, what we know of her is she is rather... Um, ecumenical. I don't know if that's the right word to say. She, she embraces, you know, everybody, it seems. Okay. Which would make sense for her to be so okay with adopting a Hebrew-born slave. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Of course, that's, that's my theory. It's a fine theory. But in any case, whoever this Egyptian daughter is, she has no problem allowing a Hebrew to raise him up. So yeah, the brilliance here of Miriam to orchestrate this for her mom to not only not lose her child, but to get a reprieve from slavery because now she's brought into kind of the royal areas to raise up Moses and she's getting paid for it. So genius, <laughs> really like she is, I'm sure her husband's like, oh, can, is there something I can do? <laughs> can, can I come? Um, but she is... This is just a brilliant blessing that comes upon her from, from the Lord. And so it says, one day when Moses had grown up, and so we're fast forwarding now 40 years, 
It says, one day when Moses had grown up, at this point we learn from from the book of Acts and, and elsewhere that Moses has had the best education Egypt could offer. He's trained up in philosophy. He's trained up in their theology. He's trained in the arts of war. He's trained up in, you know, language and speech and every everything like that. When he had grown up, he went out to his people, and he is among the princes of Egypt, and he's he would have been considered a high one, especially at this age. Hatshepsut, that daughter, is going to become one of only two female pharaohs in all the history of Egypt. So she's disproportionately powerful, which means if that is Pharaoh's daughter, Moses is going to be disproportionately powerful as the only known son of hers adopted uh, that we would, would know about if that's the case. So he's powerful. And he, when he'd grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. He looked this way and that, which means what? Just looking around. He knew something. He was going to do something wrong. He's going to do something wrong. Yeah, he wants to make sure that he's not going to get caught. He's doing this in secret. He's doing this. It's his own scheme. He doesn't want any other Egyptians to see him. And seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him him in the sand. So this is a big deal. And what's interesting is is it makes it feel like, you know, he spent 40 years as a prince, right? And listen to the language. When Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. Well, what has he been doing for the last 40 years? Like, has he not been, you get the sense, like, he has not left the palace much to go survey their burdens. This this is a new thing for him. At 40, it's like, you know what, I'm going to go check out my people. It's, it gives you the sense, by the way that it's written, that this is kind of a turn in the heart of Moses, and now he's interested. Something is is like a switch in him. Because for the previous 40 years, he has not done anything. And he looked this way. Do you agree? No? I think so. I mean, it could also just be a breaking point. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it could be. Like, it could be. And it's interesting that he calls them his people. Is he just referring to the whole lot as a whole? Yeah. I mean, these are these are the Hebrews. Specifically, but though. But he's identifying with That's them. what I'm saying. So it is identification. Like, these are my people that I'm going to go out and see their yeah. burdens. Yeah. So Hebrew says that when Moses got older, he, re- he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. So at some point in Moses' life, he's gotten all the, you know, the, the privilege of the royal family and the palaces and the wealth and the food and everything else. At some point, he said, no, that's I am not your son. I am Seems like this my point. mother's son. So it could be, or maybe this, like you're talking about, maybe this was brewing for a while. But at some point, there is a switch that gets turned, and now he is like, I am going to deliver my people. I'm, I am going to fight for them. But he's he knows that it's a seemingly impossible task unless he can get a full-staged revolt on his hands. He needs to get the Hebrew people to side with them because you remember as the, the previous pharaoh, if they ever turn and ally themselves with our enemies, we'll be in deep trouble. They're a sizable force, and if they revolt, they would be a, a, difficult, revolu- a difficult revolt to put down. And so I think we're, and, and, the, and the script later in the New Testament, the scripture talks about this, that when Moses killed this guy, he was thinking that the, the Hebrew people were going to be like, hooray, finally, Moses, you've come to deliver us, and that they were going to kind of exalt him mm. as their leader, and the opposite happens, and it's when the opposite happens that he freaks out yeah. and, and bails. So he's, he, I think he's scheming 
to seize the throne for the sake of his people. Would this is a crazy hypothetical that should I like hypothetical probably should not make it to the final episode. Oh, it's making it. Okay, but I'm just, I'm just tracking <laughs> this. This is you know brain to mouth right now. Okay, so if Moses didn't impulsively kill this Egyptian, could he have then, if our timeline makes sense and if everyone's pharaohs are right, would he have taken over the throne of Pharaoh? So what happens if my if we're talking about yeah, the right course. timeline? This is the same. If our timeline's right. So what happens? Hatshepsut seizes. She's she's going to be on the throne, right? So Thutmosis the third, who's born from a different line because Hatshepsut couldn't have kids. Some other woman had kids by the pharaoh, a secondary wife, and then Thutmosis the third comes through that line. But he's too young when Thutmosis the second dies to take the throne. So Hatshepsut takes the throne and sends him off to military school. Okay. And so he's learning, man, I'm going to be, and he, he becomes what they call the Napoleon of Egypt. He becomes a war pharaoh who's amazing. But Hatshepsut's on, on the throne, and economic commerce and prosperity just blossoms under her. If Moses, and we don't know when, when Moses does this, um, it's right near the period where Hatshepsut dies. The timeline is like right there. And then what Thutmosis III does is he goes around and finds all of her images and begins smashing her face and smashing anything that reminds people that she was a pharaoh. You see damaged, damaged statues of her all over the place. And so I think right at the point, this is my theory, so totally speculative. I think when Hatshepsut died, and she died of, oh, what was it, cancer, skin cancer and stuff like that, she had a number of maladies. And we found they found her corpse, and so they know. Um, huh. It's mummified, yeah. It's kind That's of interesting. Fun. But they also found Thutmosis the Third's corpse, and in mummified form. But anyway, when she died, I think this is when Moses goes, "I've got to, I got to take my shot." Okay. Because Thutmosis the Third hated Hatshepsut, and Moses would have been seen as a threat to the throne. Because hmm. it comes through her line. So what happens is Moses kills an Egyptian to and is like, all right, guys, let's go, let's go, let's go. It's time. And they're like, not, we're, we don't want you, <laughs> you know. And he's like, oh, my gosh. And when Thutmosis third hears that Moses has moved on this, Moses is like, I got to get out of here. I, I need to flee. That's my theory. Which would make sense because the reaction, this is, this also sounds bad. <laughs> but the reaction to royalty killing one of his people is pretty strong to yeah. desire to flee the nation. Yeah. Like if Moses really has the power he has, him yeah. killing an Egyptian wouldn't be yeah. that bad. Willy nilly. Willy Not I mean, like if you're I just killing a random soldier, who, who cares? Yeah, like, Why is a pharaoh going to kill his brother or stepbrother or so whatever? That makes a lot more sense because it seems like. Royalty killing a soldier is not a, not, not like flee the country and run and hide for 40 yeah. years. Because the new pharaoh wants to kill you. That makes more sense, yeah. though, to Completely. be this extreme reaction to, oh, no, I've been found out. Yeah. So one of the other reasons why I believe that Thutmosis uh, III, that this could, this could be him, is he's the only pharaoh of the 18th dynasty that reigns more than 40 years. And so what happens, Moses is going to flee into the wilderness, and he stays there for 40 years, kind of to blow the next chapter. <laughs> he stays there for 40 years, and it's not until that Pharaoh dies after 40 years that God comes and says, hey, the Pharaoh who sought to kill you is dead. Go back to Egypt. Mm. So that also fits. Thutmose reigns 
way longer than the average pharaoh. And so, like, when I when I piece it together, at least in my mind, and you can't take this as thus saith the Lord, this is, hey, it fits together history, it's pretty compelling, you know, thus says Sam's theory, but it works. Yeah. Everything kind of works here, uh, even down to the, the exodus and death of firstborns and stuff like that. It just, it fits. No more spoilers, though. Okay, yeah, no more... <laughs> <laughs> no more spoilers. Stay in the moment. So anyway, so Moses kills this guy, high, buries him in the sand, which in Egypt... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go. Destroys his chance at an afterlife. Well, don't talk about it like it's nothing. I mean, that's a big deal. So in Egypt, if you if your body... I, I think it's fake, though, so... You think it's fake? What do you mean? I know they believe that, but I don't believe in their afterlife. Oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. <laughs> so in Egypt, they believed that if you wanted your essence or your soul to live on or to ever have a resurrection that your image needed to be preserved. And primarily they, they believed, you know, preserve your body through mummification. But if you couldn't do that, statues, forms, drawings, any like written records of yourself, they believed that you had to be preserved through history, either your image or your memory. And if that was ever lost, you were gone. And so when Moses puts you into the sand and, you know, your body's going to rot real quick and decompose, you're gone. So it's not just stealing your life. It's stealing your hope of an afterlife. And so that's, a, that's the even greater sin here. And it says, when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling with each other. And so now all of a sudden Moses is like, hey, I'm one of you. You know, no, hey, you should love me. Remember? And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? And that's an, that's an interesting question because Moses is a prince. It's literally a prince and a judge. <laughs> and a them. judge. And so what, what, why would they ask that? It shows that what they're asking is, do you think, do you think all of a sudden you're our leader? Like it, it, it's, it makes more sense to think in terms of the revolution, right? Yeah. Like, who made you a prince and judge over us? It's like they're speaking exclusively. Like, you think that you're going to lead us? And even how kind of working to the Pharaoh's opinion of these Hebrews, like they view themselves as strong enough to even an Egyptian royal is not the prince and judge over them. Mm -hmm. Like they see themselves, yeah, we're enslaved, but we, we're the Hebrew people. We're getting pretty strong in this moment, That's right. which is interesting. And so when, when, Mo, when they say, do you mean to kill me as you killed that Egyptian? And then Moses is like, oh, my goodness, people know. And they're not, like, lining up to follow after me. And he says, surely this thing is knows. And when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Okay, so leaping back into Genesis, what do you know is going to happen? He's at a well. Meeting a wife. He's meeting a wife, and that's exactly what happens. And notice the pattern in the story. So if you remember what happened when Abraham sends the servant to find Rebekah, and he says, you know, I'm, this is going to be the test, Lord. I want a woman who comes up who volunteers to not only give me water, but me and my camels, mm -hmm. right? And then Jacob is, you know, pouring out and getting water for all of Rachel's flock, and there's something about this. And listen to this story now. It says, verse 16, it says, now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And I said, I want to pause there. Who's the priest of Midian and why does that matter? Midian is one of the sons of Abraham. He is one of the sons that's born to Abraham's second wife, Keturah. So Sarah dies. Mm -hmm. Sarah's given birth to Ishmael and Isaac. Those are the ones we know. 
But we're also told in kind of throwaway lines that Abraham remarried Keturah, and Keturah, I think, had six sons. One of those is Midian. And so they would have taken on the sign of covenant. They would, have, they would have been circumcised. They would have known what Abraham known. The oral tradition would have come down. And so these are kind of cousins to the Hebrews in the faith. You know, the, the line of the Messiah is not coming through them. The, the covenantal blessing is not coming through their line, but they're familiar with the God of Abraham. And so the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and, to drew, and drew water and filled troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. So here you have these you know, shepherds that show up, and they're kind of bullies, and they're using their power. And so they drive these women away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. And that's kind of wild. Like, because you have multiple shepherds that are coming to kind of torment these women and push them away and to shove their way into the well first. And you have Moses, who's one guy who's been trained in all aspects by the best of Egypt, right? And he's already killed somebody. He's killed somebody. So he's this dude, this dude, he's like Navy SEAL, I think. I think he's got a teardrop. <laughs> <laughs> a tattoo, teardrop tattoo. So, but I mean, think about that. He goes and drives these shepherds away. One man against, I don't know, two, three, four shepherds, but he drives them away. So he's an impressive guy. He's still dressed in all of his Egyptian regalia. So they, I mean, they know he's Egypt, right? And then what does it say? He saved them and watered their flock. Now this is going to be totally new for him because he's been raised up as a prince in Egypt, and he has spent his whole life being served. Mm. And I was reading a commentary, and I thought this was really, really well done, that Moses has to leave the palace before he can become the savior. He has to learn what it means to serve. He has to learn what it means to be lowly. He has to learn to identify downward before God will use him as a mighty deliverer. And so when you hear, it's like he's taking on, he becomes the Rebecca who serves these foreigners, even though he's dressed up in the regalia of Egypt and probably could have used that to say, do you know who I am? Uh, he humbles himself and he's going to learn in a very strong way, humility through all this ordeal. So verse 18, it says, when they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, how is it that you've come home so soon today? And they said, well, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. So tremendous sense of hospitality in the ancient world, especially through this region where it's desert terrain. And, you know, it's, it's like when you're driving out west, you see a gas station every like 200 miles, it feels like, <laughs> you know. Like, that gas station needs to be ready. And the same thing here. Like, you have to show hospitality to travelers because it's literally life and death in that region. And this is going to ask, is this, let's backtrack. Ruel. Yes. Is this Moses' father-in-law that I know is Jethro, or is this a different character? The same guy. Okay. Same guy, two names, which is confusing because you come across this and it's like, wait, wait, hold on. I thought it was Jethro. Um, but same guy, this name Ruel, I just looked it up just a minute ago. It it literally means friend of God, and so this might have been I'm a friend of God, a nickname or some kind of secondary name. But Jethro is going to be his name. 
Okay. Um, and we see him showing up later on, and the idea that his name literally means friend of God is another nod to us that he's faithful. Um, you know, he's he's somebody from the line of Abraham who is still a friend of God. And uh, this guy is going to be very valuable to Moses later on and ministry. Uh, so he's he's a he's a big deal. He's a, he's a hero in the stories of the scripture. And so he's like, bring Moses in. And it says, and Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And so Gershom's name literally means stranger or sojourner. um, And Moses is beginning to identify with that. This place is not my home. I am not living in the palace. This is not my home in a spiritual sense. I am but a sojourner during my years on earth, which is what the patriarchs would all say. And was that even pointing to like a hint of going back to Egypt eventually? Like because now I'm in a foreign land, Egypt's yeah. my home? I don't think so because even then he's not planning on staying. But I course. guess maybe he could say, you know, that's where I was raised. But I think it's also like whenever the patriarchs and the people in the scripture refer to themselves as sojourners, it's like they really recognize this world is not my home. I'm looking for something better yeah, is the idea. And weren't they looking forward to the real promised land in their eyes? Yeah, that's another thing. And so uh, this could take us on a serious rabbit trail. But one of the things that I find fascinating here is why why did they stay in Egypt? So, so let's let's pause for a moment, and we have to kind of get in the time machine and go back, you know, the 400 years before Moses. So Joseph delivers them. He's, he's saved them from the famine. Surely, you know, the rain started again. The crops got better. They could have gone home, but they, they chose to stay in Egypt. Like, they knew that home was the promised land. They knew that God was calling their future generations there, but they chose to stay in Egypt. Why? What do, you, what do you think? Comfortability. Man, I think this is such, such a teaching point for us. Because at the beginning of their slavery, remember last week we talked about how when they first started, like they, they were enslaved for 400 years, but you almost wouldn't call the beginning of their slavery slavery. You know, they were multiplying like crazy. They were, they were slaves to take care of the Pharaoh's herds and flocks and stuff like that. But they were living job. in the best land. Yeah. They got the best stuff. But they were slaves during that time. And they were like, hmm, this is comfortable. I kind of like this slavery. This is way better than going back home where we have to make our own way and there's all these wandering tribes that we're always bumping elbows with. This is much more comfortable here, so I'm going to stay in the slavery. And what ended up happening? Well, the Hyksos come along, and you're in sla- your slavery intensifies, and before you know it, and then the, then the Egyptians conquer the Hyksos, and it intensifies even more. And before you know it, you were, you were saying, you know what? This slavery is, you know, it's not freedom, but it's comfortable. Yeah. And then before you know it, your slavery has got you trapped and you can't leave. And that's, that's how I think of addiction, really. Like I, when I think of addiction, it's like the first couple times you try it or whatever, you enjoy it, it's fun. You think, well, there wasn't a bad consequence. We'll do some more. Yeah. And before you know it, it's wrecking your life and it's miserable and harsh and you can't leave it as much as you'd love to. Mm-hmm. And it's it always fascinated me to think like, why didn't they go home? Like they had, they could have gone home, you know, but they 
got stuck and stuck and stuck. And after a while, maybe even more than 100 years or 150 years before long, they weren't allowed to. And it's a nod to how comfortable we are when we know someone in power or when we're in power. Mm-hmm. Because it didn't turn for them to, like you said, the Hyksos came in and th- mm-hmm. this pharaoh didn't know Joseph or his family. And that's when things got bad. But And you can imagine where they... I don't know, and this is all hearsay, so again, yeah. we're just speculating for fun. You know, you tolerate the loss of liberty because the person you love is in power. Man, when that turns back on you and the other side gets power, you can you can expect that the loss of liberty that you cheered for when the other side was on the the receiving end, you're going to lament when the other side comes to power and uses all those same means to squash you. And... uh Anyway, it's just fascinating to me that they, they didn't go home and didn't want to go home until they couldn't go home. And do you think they were passing down the promise in that comfortability? Yeah. Like there's also a certain amount of generational teaching that we stop doing, Yeah, I believe, sometimes. Yeah, you know, so God had told Abraham, your descendants are going to be enslaved for 400 years in a foreign place. He doesn't name it, but you have to start thinking, like, is this the place? Like, we've been here a long time. But they still choose to stay. Mm. Um, and Abraham, you know, hints that it's not going to be pleasant for them. And yet they're like, yeah, but it's still kind of nice right now. You know, maybe the next generation should leave before it gets bad. And then they just never do. Um, and God had foretold it. So it's kind of like the sovereignty. It's going to happen. And yet they walk right into it. Yeah, they were free agents that chose their own demise in a sense. Yeah, yeah. interesting. It's interesting to to think about anyway all right so so they have he has a son gershom been a stranger in a foreign land and uh closing it up there's there's not there's only 25 verses for this whole chapter and we're in 23 now it says during those many days the king of egypt died so we've come to the end of 40 years of moses in the wilderness with his father-in-law uh, taking care of their flocks. And it says the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And so you get this this impression that their slavery is just in a linear sense getting more and more miserable as it goes. And now they are just crying out for help. I mean, this is this is brutal misery. He's killing their children. I mean, you go down the line, it's only getting worse. It says their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. Um, and that's, that is a, that's a real comfort that when you pray and you cry, because no doubt these people have been like, man, it's been centuries and there's no sense that anything's coming. In fact, it's just getting worse. I keep praying and things keep getting worse. And yet the prayers are reaching God and in his timetable, he's, you know, got all of his chess pieces lined up that he's ready to to do one of the most remarkable moments of deliverance and salvation in the history of the world, and yet to them in their everyday experience, this is rough. And they had no idea that those prayers are actually being heard by God. What do you what do you do with that? I don't know. It's like my prayers don't seem to be working. Should I stop? Yeah. You know, that's we we look at this and it's like okay god you could you could stop this on a dime why don't you why don't you um but then there's the tension as well that moses 
you know, God doesn't bring salvation of the world through Jesus by just snapping his fingers. He sends his son to endure suffering. He sends his son from the palace. You know, it's like Moses lost the palace. Well, Jesus lost the palace. And he comes in and he relates to his people's suffering and they get a real sense of the cost of salvation. And, you know, and all of that is involved in it. And it makes the moment of salvation all the more wonderful and precious. And it's like, does that, is that warranting why God took so long? Does that make sense of it? And you can, you can try to justify all of these things in a million different ways. Why doesn't God move to whatever your prayer request is? Like, why doesn't he answer? Does he not care? And this is where you have to go to, you know, scriptures like Romans 8 is one of my very favorites where it talks about when you're so emotionally overwhelmed that you don't even know how to pray, that the Spirit is interceding for you with words, with groans too powerful for words, or that Jesus always lives to intercede for you. You know, he grieves with you, and you see through the Scriptures, he weeps with his people even though he's powerful enough to overthrow their condition. So in the wisdom of God, even as it tugs on his heartstrings, as it does here, there is some wisdom in waiting. There's some wisdom in his timetable. And if you believe the scriptures, you can, you can try by faith to take comfort in that. I know who you are, God. I know you suffer for me. I know that you hear me, that you, you empathize with me, that you love me more than I love myself. I can't make sense of the circumstances, but I don't have your mind. I trust you. That is hard. But if you could see behind the scenes... You know, <laughs> if you could see the throne room, that your prayers really do reach the ears of God in those hard moments, um, it would be comforting to you. And this generation has to be thinking like, this can't even be for consequences that I caused. I mean, we're talking about 400 years of slavery. They're talking generation after generation. So you're yeah. sitting there after 400 years thinking, hey, God, I didn't choose this. I didn't ask for this. I did nothing to deserve this. Right. And yet here I am stuck in these circumstances that I can't fix and crying out is legitimately all they can do. Yeah. Yeah. You didn't, you didn't earn or deserve this. Yeah. And yet here you are. And I mean, imagine, imagine the, if you just buried your dad who spent his whole life in that and it's like, man, he never got to see freedom. Mm -hmm. He never got to see the salvation. And yet, one generation on top of the other passing that promise along, that covenantal promise, like in the eternal scheme of things, you know, he may have spent 40 or 50 years as a slave in, in misery, but in the eternal scheme of things, you know, that's a, a mist or a vapor, and not to trivialize it, but it is. It's a mist or a vapor next to eternity. And to be able to look behind the curtain to, to see what God is ultimately going to do to accomplish through this, you know, that he had predicted and foreshadowed way, way ahead of time. I um, mean, it said God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw, and that word is so much more than just visual. It's he sees you. He knows what you're going through. He's not blind to what you're walking through. Uh, and by the way, he's, he's going to enter your suffering. He's going to endure a suffering far, 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 far worse than anything you'll ever carry. And God hears you. God sees you. God groans for you. Um, 
And then at the last words of this chapter are just precious to me. He saw the people of Israel and God knew. Like what is like that's just amazing. Like it doesn't you know, it's not intellectual. It's not like and God knew that it the time was running short. Like it's no, God knows. He didn't look at his watch, was like, Oh, it's time to end the slavery. No. It's I mean, it's it's like when somebody just in the deepest grief just buries their head on your shoulder and you have walked through what they're walking through and you just say, I know, I know, I know. That's what God is saying here. Like, God, and God knew. He, and the eternal mind of God, like he knows this pain. He knows what it's like to not have prayers answered, by the way, or at least not according to what he wants. I mean, think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Like, I don't want this. Like, please, God, you just change it. God knows, you know, there's nothing. And that's what makes our God altogether radically different than any other God that you could conceive of. Every other religion would say that, it, that it's appalling to imagine God would suffer. What kind of God would put up with suffering? What kind of God? And it's like when you read the book of Hebrews, like our God would. And why would he? The Bible tells us because he wants to be able to sympathize with his people. He so cares for us in the middle of our misery, that he endured misery so that when we cry out to him, he can say, I know. Mm. Like, how privileged are we compared to those who have gods that are just distant, transcendent, detached judges? We serve a God who knows. And that can get you through a lot. Yeah, and it's so beautiful, even that he heard they're crying and what moved him to act was his own promise because mm-hmm. it gets humbling because cool. oftentimes i'm like no god you need to act because i'm doing things right or god you need to act because look at me like you should act now you should be doing because i deserve this or i've earned this or whatever it is and that totally just crushes that but also it goes the other side of suffering where it's not a pity that god's throwing at these people yeah like he's not just saying no there's purpose in your suffering it wasn't wasted but he's saying, no, no, I'm remembering who I am. I'm remembering the generations of promises. I'm remembering far past these 400 years when I gave this to Abraham. And so it's beautiful that the gospel, again, doesn't rely on me at all. Yeah. That's really, that's amazing. I mean, it's, and in some sense, in God's sovereignty, when he told Abraham, hey, your future generations are going to face this, like he was in control. You know, and there's something that's valuable about that, you know, for, for them. You know, like, as Christians, we know how the story turns out, right? So I can't tell you how many times I have people that'll be in conversation, and it's about how the world's a dumpster fire and everything's turning upside down, and it's harder and harder to live here, and I feel more and more like a stranger and a sojourner in a place that's just not my home. I can't relate to the world anymore. And you'll hear the people say, we win in the end. We win in the end. You know, we know how this all turns out. They had that same thing. Hmm. You know, when, when God told Abraham, they're going to be enslaved in a foreign country for 400 years, but I'm going to draw them out. You can imagine the person who's living at year 300 being like, you know, I might not see it in my day, but we know how this ends. Yeah. We know how. They had that too. Hmm. There's always the promise of God, like you just talked about, that there is a promise, a covenant of God that he will hold on to, and we can look back at that promise that was fulfilled for them. 
and go, man, he did it for them and he did it for countless other people where he kept his word and delivered them and brought about massive revival or, or salvation or redemption. Hey, we got that too. We have so much more of a better promise than they did. And we know how this plays out, right? And, and in the meantime, he knows. <laughs> and scripture and history is such a gift to us that we look past. Because like you're saying, they had that promise, but they didn't have historical books that showed that God has proven it again and again. Yeah, true. So we go back to this with thousands of years of not just scripture, but of history. You know, even as the Bible ends, then we go into you know more modern history and we see, oh, God's still moving in our past and he's doing this and he's doing that. So they're kind of just... yeah. They're really trusted. We're us. Yeah. We're so fickle because we're like, <laughs> oh, here we are in 2023 and everything looks so rough. Yeah, no, slavery was rough in Egypt. Yeah. 400 years. Yeah. Like we get upset if it goes on a week. Has America yeah. been around for 400 years? No. See, we're not even at that point. <laughs> I mean, I guess if you, you're talking pilgrims. Nah, I'm not talking pilgrims. talking 1776. I just yeah, didn't no. want to do the math. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they, they literally had, they had oral tradition and they had the rainbow. And in Egypt, it never rained. Hardly at all. So they, they had oral tradition. <laughs> yeah, they, they couldn't even see a rainbow every once in a while. Um, but that's who our God is. He's just mm. awesome. And yeah. he's, he's fun to talk about even in the hard things because guess what? Like he hasn't changed and the world is still hard. Um, <laughs> it really is. But and that's okay. He's good. It'll work out in the end. Yeah. And in the meantime, he knows. He hears. He sees. He's a good God. Amen. You're supposed to say amen. Oh, sorry. I thought that was rhetorical. Amen. What are you, who says? I thought you were talking to the listeners. Like, they're in their cars like, amen, Sam. Oh, no. I was talking to you. Okay. Sorry. I just wanted to include them. That's probably the best place to amen because if you're nervous to audibly amen, that's a safe place to do it. Yeah, that's true. It's like most people sing in the shower, but you wouldn't Never. sing in public. I am a friend of God. Do you ever raise your hands in the car when you're praising? No. Why not? I don't know. You don't want to wreck? No, it's not that. I don't, I don't know if that's my first thought. All right, we're way off. This was supposed to be the wind-up part. Now your lack of an amen has got us way off track. All right, so anyway, thank you so much. Just edit in my amen. Okay. I'm amen. At, I'm at. <laughs> so anyway, thank you so much for joining us today as we've talked about Exodus chapter 2. Um, next chapter, we get into the burning bush, God's call to go back to Moses and to confront Pharaoh to deliver his people. Uh, and this this battle is about to get ramped up, and it's really fascinating. So I hope you will join us next week on the Out of Water podcast. Like and subscribe and do all that good stuff, and we will see you in a week. God bless. I am a friend of God. We hope you enjoyed your time with us, and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash out of water.